This week on Hacker in the Fed, security researchers find a vulnerability that will allow them to run code on Google computers. Ghost tokens could be used to permanently control Google Workplace accounts. We let you know what a pumpkin sandstorm and a spandex tempest are. How long does it take to crack your password in 2023? And we answer listener questions about the FBI, diversity in cybersecurity appliances, and we talk about Anna Kornikova. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbo, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner of Nexo. Joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, cybersecurity expert, and as I said, close personal friend. Hector, how are things going? Hey, my friends. Uh, pretty well. Pretty well. Can't complain. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Enough banter, Hector. We need to move on to the stories. Ah, I see. Ah, I know. I did get good feedback this week that, that people did enjoy our banter. Um, a little change in the show. Hector and I will do banter at the end of the show. So the stories will now be up front and uh, we will uh, have our banter back and forth, our behind the scenes of Hacker in the Fed at the end of the show. So, Hector, keep it inside until we get through these stories. All right, you got it. Our first story is about remote code execution vulnerabilities in Google that they're not willing to fix. So a security group called Giraffe Security found a way to run uh, remote codes on laptops or desktops of Google employees. Uh, pretty Ooh. interesting attack, Hector. Yeah, no, it, it is. It was a good read. Um, big shout out for the researchers over there at Giraffe Security kind of like putting this together and, and allowing us to read about it. You know, some some research can go public. Um, I think that, uh, you know, these guys put together this research. They found some potential issues um, specifically with uh, – what they call dependency confusion, which we'll get into the technical bit shortly. We'll get into it now. Jump into it now. I mean, you, sure, you've yeah. tickled people's fancy on uh, dependency <laughs> confusion. What is it? Yeah, well, dependency confusion, at least in this case, is um, where a developer may be trying to, or rather may code a project in the project. They may have, and we'll use Python as an example, because that's pretty much what the, the target audience here was. In Python, you can create a script or, or, or a package. Within that package, you can have a file called requirements.txt. Um, and that's, you know, that's usually the name. And inside that uh, text file, you can have a list of dependencies that you want to install whenever you download and install a package. It's pretty common. Most people at this point are, should be used to it um, when it comes to dealing with uh, uh, Python tools and then maybe development or even downloading tools for, for use. You still have to install external dependencies. Now, here's where the confusion part comes in. Imagine a scenario where you're working for an organization. You guys have your own internal repository of projects and libraries that you want to 
import into your projects. You know, depending on how you do it, there's many different ways to kind of uh, deal with dependencies. But the straightforward way is that you would either make a reference to it, either in the command line, or in this case, you would use something like an extra index URL in pip itself. And pip is a tool um, by Python or by the Python team that allows you to kind of install packages from the PyPy repository. We've discussed that many times in the past. I think at least three episodes we've had this, this conversation. But what's cool is that, you know, if you are working for an organization and you're trying to import internal repositories and you use this, this feature of, of, of PyPy, you know, there may be the potential that um, you may be actually importing, downloading uh, libraries from an external source, from PyPy itself, rather than an internal repository. Hence, dependency confusion. You've said a lot there. Can I unpack it just a little bit? Sure. So when you program something, you're not you're saying that people don't have to reinvent the wheel all over again. They can use things that people have written in the past uh, and, and they place it in a repository. So if I have a, a function that's been well you know purposed and really thought out and there's a good piece of code uh, and it does exactly what I need, I can just make a call to that package to, to do that for me. Absolutely. If you have if you have the package in a repository, whether it's external or internal, um, you could you could uh, um, you know either install it through PyPy uh, with the pip commands or um, some other mechanism, and you could import that code into your project. Absolutely. Okay. And so the researchers at Giraffe Security they found a way that Google was using these programs, and they're recalling to a repository that was outside of Google's networks, right? That's correct. The the developers at Google in this story, at least were trying to reference an internal package name that the researcher had identified during their reconnaissance and information gathering session. They, they then created that repository publicly through the PyPy repo um, platform. And then uh, they just kind of sat back and waited. Sorry, what could you put in these packages? Well, you can put whatever you want. You can put whatever code that you know, fits your narrative, right? I mean, so if you are a malicious actor and you're trying to, and you're trying to compromise Google employees, and you have an understanding or maybe are aware of some Google tools or package names, you know, you would be essentially be able to backdoor these employees uh, with malicious code. And that's kind of what we kind of headed into with this conversation, rather with this with the story. The researchers had put in um, some payloads that would kind of ping back to them, thus alerting them of who was running the, the package and where those uh, requests came from. So the methodology that this guy, the, the giraffe security they used in finding the dependency confusions um, in large tech companies, as a former hacker, do you find it impressive? I find it interesting. I find it really interesting. Um, it's definitely a think outside the box scenario, right? If you are a developer at Google or any organization for that matter, and you're using internal package names and you're referencing or you know, you're setting up your requirements file uh, to request those internal package names. The assumption is you're only going to get those internal packages. But the fact that, you know, the feature that these guys highlighted in their report, you know, this extra index URL made it so that, uh, you know, it, it could be a problem. And that's exactly what happened here. There's a great line here, if you don't mind me reading it from this report. And I would say that we're going to include the URL for this report on our description. And I would recommend that all of you read it. It's very interesting. But... Here's what they said. The reference to package X was in a requirements file, meaning it was a Python package. This was good news as Python is a language with unarguably the worst dependency management system. With Python, though, it is extremely easy to misconfigure installation scripts, 
and to be prone to dependency confusion. Just to show how easy it is to shoot yourself in the foot, here's an example. An example shows you know, uh, a command to pip install kaboom, and then, of course, the extra index URL, which points to an external URL. Now, here's what's interesting. You know, any reader, and this is, again, this is verbatim, not verbatim for this, this story here, uh, would know that, and, and especially when it's, you know, they're, they're up to date with uh, security news for, for Python, that the extra index URL is a no-go for installing private packages. Despite having known this for years now, it is still widely used. And in this article, they also give you a link to a GitHub issue for uh, for PIP, which kind of goes into details to where the issue lies and why not to use it. Okay, I would say be careful, everyone, to linking to things inside the stories that we link to. Um, <laughs> I do know that the links we have are are good, but any links inside those links, uh, we may not have checked. So be careful. But couldn't Google have just set their developers couldn't go outside? Um, to an outside repository? Isn't, isn't that a standard setting they could have had? Yeah, but unfortunately, you know, it, it, this might be a process problem, right? So it could be a process or policy problem. Maybe the developers in this case were not aware um, that uh, that using this parameter with PIP was going to be problematic for them. There's a lot of things that could, that could be wrong here, okay? Whether it's, it's a policy issue, maybe they were unaware of this issue, but here's what we know. We know that the theory the researchers came up with was indeed correct. They had an understanding that these packages could be imported from from internal sources. And yeah, I mean, it, it led to essentially a compromise. You know, it, it kind of leads me to a question for you. And before I get to my question, I just kind of want to point out something. So the researchers here obviously were not malicious. They kind of wanted to, to highlight this problem. It's a problem that has been known for quite some time. It's not necessarily new, um, but the effect. I mean, I'm looking at some of the hosts that they compromise. You know, these are definitely Google, googlers.com hosts or google.com hosts with usernames of potential employees at Google. From my point of view, considering that this researcher was able to put together this package, the package contains um, arbitrary code, right? I mean, theoretically, you could, you could consider this a compromise of these employees, how would how would you look at it from a law enforcement side? Like, if Google quoted today and, and explained the story to you, would there be a problem for the researchers in this case? So the law we're talking about is uh, 18 U.S.C. 1030. Um, that's pretty much all the hacking laws is in there. And part of that law is exceeding authorized access. So if the payload that was was put on the repository caused the computer to send out information that was not publicly publicly available or gave access to the security people like put in a some sort of you know back door or something then i would say yes if it just pinged home that it was alive and it only put out the ip address it was coming from uh didn't include any sort of mac address or any internal information i'd probably say no it's uh no it's not it wouldn't be. It's a fine line. I mean, it's a very fine line. Yeah, and, and by the way, for the audience, I'm not asking that question because I, I don't want these guys, these researchers to get in trouble. That's not the case at all. I think this is great work on their part. I would rather the researcher find something like this than than a bad actor. And I assure you, after the story came out, there are probably bad actors considering whether this is possible or this is a potential vector to hit other maybe corporations, right? But here's the thing. We know that this this has been an issue for quite some time. This is not a new attack vector. This is the first time I've seen it 
in, in, in practice. I'll be honest with you. Uh, maybe I've read stories. Maybe we've seen stories uh, in the news for things like this. But it was interesting to see this actually work. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So Google initially accepted the reports as legitimate. Okay. They even offered back um, to the researchers a bounty of $500. Okay. When the researcher began to get more traffic, even more traffic from Google employees, um, the researcher reported the issue back again. And Google this time said, mm, well, this is intended behavior. We're not going to fix this. This is not an issue. And it requires social engineering in order for it to be successful. But I do want to highlight one point from the story, that the um, the researchers in this case did not participate or create a social engineering campaign. Um, they did not social engineer um, any Google employees directly. This was a passive attack. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I totally disagree with Google that this was social engineering. They didn't trick these guys into clicking on anything. They didn't trick them into giving out any sort of information whatsoever. Um, you know, these guys, you know, they misconfigured their setup that they called upon packages on a publicly available uh, repository. I don't see where where the security researchers did anything to try to influence the uh, Google uh, developers into doing anything. Yeah, I mean, th this is definitely one that's interesting because, I mean, I love Python. I've been programming with Python for many, many years, probably most of my life. Um, big shout out to Guido Van Rassam, Rassam for, uh, for you know introducing this to, to all of our lives. Python is amazing. But it's package management system and, and uh, you know, PyPy and, and PIP and everything associated with it, they you know, they do lack some, some major security features like integrity checks and so on. I mean, you know, I don't want to, you know, sound completely wrong here. There are There is potential to do integrity checks with Python. You could also specify where the repository is that a, a PIP would, would download packages from. Uh, there's, there's definitely workarounds. But the reality is by default, if you just hit PIP install kaboom, and I'm using that that example from the from the um, from the research report. It will immediately try to download Kaboom from the PyPy repository. Okay, if you are a developer working in a corp corporation and you yourself use a Kaboom package internally, then you need to figure out a way, the best possible way, to incorporate that into your development cycle. You need to be able to kind of pinpoint where that package is hosted, and you want to make sure that you are you are avoiding the PyPy repository. Um, if that's not what you're trying to download, okay, it is going to be a problem. I could I could foresee this being an issue for other programming languages as well. Um, programming languages that that operate very similar to to you know uh, that have package manager managers that, that work similar to like PyPy's repository. I guess my my message for developers here for the audience is you definitely have to take a look at how you're importing code. You have to make sure that you you're in control of what that source is. And then also, to, you have to find a way to validate what it is that you're importing. Maybe some sort of testing. Maybe you have to, you know, take advantage of, of and again, read through the, the PIP manual um, if you're using Python. You know, that'll be a great way for you to kind of mitigate something like this. Excellent points, Hector. Excellent points. So the next story is about ghost tokens. And uh, ghost tokens open Google accounts to permanent infections. So it really comes down to uh, an OAuth story. Hector, uh, can you kind of explain what OAuth is to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, OAuth is, is essentially an open standard. You know, it's used for um, 
access delegation. It's used for, depending on how the application uses it, uh, it could be a, a way to access protected data from an application. You can, you can define scopes. It's basically a mechanism for authentication or authorization. It works quite well. It could be used for a ton of, ton of different um, case studies. You know, I think that the problem with OAuth is that people don't really understand it, understand what, how the protocol works or what it is, right? I mean, if you were to look at even the, the documents, the documentation for OAuth or the specification for OAuth, and I'm just going to open this up real quick because I kind of want to kind of give you some, some idea. This was published back in 2012. It is, um, you know, request for comments 6749 or RSC 6749. You guys can Google that. And here's the abstract, all right? The OAuth 2.0 authorization framework enables a third-party application to obtain limited access to an HTTP service, either on behalf of the resource owner by orchestrating an approval interaction between the resource owner and the HTTP service, or by allowing the third-party application to uh, obtain access on its own behalf, okay? Um, And it it obsoletes um, OAuth 1.0, which is also RFC 5849. Definitely check that out when you guys have time. It's, it's fantastic, right? It's a great tool. I, I use it all the time. But there's a caveat, ladies and gents. Uh, depending on how it's used, your know, OAuth can essentially be used as a backdoor to gain access to your resources, okay? And I'm sure we'll get into that in a second once we go through the story. But I hope that's a, a solid intro for OAuth right now, uh, Chris. Oh, it was great. But uh, just to dumb it down for the audience a little bit. So when you see stuff like log in with Facebook, when you log into another application and it uses your, your Facebook credentials to get you or log in with Google and it uses your Google credentials to log you in, that's OAuth, right? So as we know, OAuth is an authorization protocol. Okay, fantastic. We kind of get the idea of what that means. But if you were to log into, let's say, Spotify um, using a third-party service, then you would be directed to that third-party service to gain access or to provide access to Spotify using that third-party service. In this case, let's say uh, Facebook or Google, okay? So you would, use, you would use like your Google account or your Facebook account to log into Spotify, and you would basically grant Spotify access to your resources through that account, okay? So it looks very similar to single sign-on, but now let's look at single sign-on. Single sign-on is not a protocol. Um, it's, it's another concept for... Um, you know, using multiple service providers with one, with one login. Um, it also has an authentication and authorization flow, right? Um, where you can log into multiple services using the same credentials. Now, since this topic was on um, OAuth, think about it like this. We, we kind of talk about the story. The attacker in this case was able to convince the, uh, the victim to authorize their application uh, as being authorized for access. Now, once that access is granted, you know, this ghost token essentially would be like kind of like a backdoor to your account. Now, it's terrible for something like Google because if, if you're granting someone access to your Google resources, then the person that's accessing those resources with that token will now be able to read you know, your Gmail, uh, access your Google Photos, Google Drive. They'll look at your calendar. They'll, they'll track you via Google Maps, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. I know the story here is specific to Google Cloud, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the gist of it here. And so what they're doing is they are tricking people into downloading the application. Uh, and then once authorized and giving you know, authority for your credentials in to, to access that application, then they can turn off or put the, the, you know, their project 
into limbo. Um, it's like a pending status. And that way you don't see that application uh, available on your phone. But at any point, they can turn it back on, grab your credentials, and, and then turn it back off. Um, that's sort of the, the, the ghost uh, token aspect of it. Yeah, and and you know the thing is that OAuth phishing has been very, I wouldn't say has it been prominent as opposed to the other kind of social engineering campaigns you're you're kind of used to. And I speak to the audience here because at this point, all of you have seen social engineering or phishing emails at this point. Um, some of which, probably the more sophisticated ones, are using like OAuth applications. Now, here's the thing with that: if you're trying to create an OAuth application through Google, it actually has to be accepted by Google. If the attacker in this case is able to hijack a legitimate application or create a, uh, you know, a, a phony or a fish application, and they leave it active and they start compromising a ton of accounts, eventually Google's going to catch it. Well, why do I know this? I know this for facts because one of my clients uh, wanted us to do OL phishing because they read in the news. They were interested in what it looks like. We pulled it off. We had access to um, you know, our victims' accounts, and we were able to uh, extract emails and all that cool stuff. But by end of day, that app was disabled by Google. So it's there is uh, a time constraint, it seems, for for these fishers. And of course, the payloads may may trigger some sort of uh, um, some sort of alert for you know the Google systems or security systems. Did you make the application, or like how, you just, how, where did you get the, get access to the application? Yeah, I mean, a big shout out to uh, to my boy Xander. Xander put the application together. We did a proof of concept. We did some phishing with it with to a few clients, and uh, it worked successfully until, like I said, you know, we got the email from Google saying that the application was disabled and it was taken down for uh, for suspicion of phishing activities. So it, it's definitely a real thing, and Google has been looking at this for quite some time. That research project we did was back in 2016 or 2017. So it, it's it's definitely something that Google is aware of. Now, in this case, it's a ghost token story. It's interesting because now. You know, now what we're learning from this story is that an attacker could get an application accepted. They'll probably change its, 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 uh, its capabilities or, or exactly what the application does, post acceptance, do some phishing, get some victims, and then disable the application or put it on pause so that maybe it won't trigger Google security uh, tools or, or whatever, what have you in the back end, right? That seems what, what this story is kind of telling us. Yeah, and I mean, so the story does end that Google did patch it on, on April 7th. Um, but if you're like a Google Workspace admin, um, any apps that were, you know, downloaded prior to uh, April 7th uh, could still be vulnerable to this attack. Oh, yeah. And I'm just looking kind of like, you know, some points here. And this is great stuff to read. Again, audience, check out the, the link in the description so you guys can take a look at this. So the attackers would then immediately rehide the application from the victim once it got access to a new access token, okay? And then to maintain persistence, the attacker would, uh, or the attack loop must be executed periodically before the pending deletion project is purged. So imagine a scenario. Here's the attack path. Attacker creates an OAuth, an arbitrary OAuth application. They get it accepted to Google or whatever it is. They send out some phishing emails. They, they get a couple of victims. As soon as they're done kind of with the day or with the, the day of work, They'll pause the application for deletion, and they'll just keep re-enabling it um, periodically, just kind of avoid a purge. I mean, I, I didn't think about that. I'll be honest with you. When I was doing this research back in the days with Xander and his team, we just created the application, we put it online, we did our engagements, and we just kind of let it sit until we got that email. So yeah, interesting take on this. 
We're very happy to partner with Delete Me for this episode. Delete Me is a simple subscription privacy service for reducing unwanted personal information exposed on the public web. Hector has been a customer of Delete Me for years and found it easy to use and effective at removing his personal information. You know, I've said it before, but I've been using Delete Me for years. They're a fantastic service. They're easy to use. I think the price is solid. Customer support is great. I've had them literally delete <laughs> hundreds, if not thousands, of PII of of different data broker sites. And there's a ton of them. You know, there's this over 580 data broker sites or so. And they keep growing, I feel like, almost every day. But big shout out for Delete Me for, a whole, you know, having my back and, and taking care of that for me. And I'm also very happy that they're, um, you know, partnering up with us for uh, for these Hacker in the Fed episodes. And the reports you get from Delete Me, they're really easy to use, right, Hector? Yeah, the reports are fantastic. So here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a report showing you um, some metrics as to how many websites, you know, contains your PII. There will also be some metrics on what was deleted, what's pending. I have yet to run into a scenario where a site refused to delete my PII. Um, delete Me is, is, is pretty aggressive in their approach. I mean, they're, they go, they're hardcore about it. They will reach out. They have their own attorneys. It's a whole process. So you're not just paying for an automated system. You actually have a team that's going to support you. Big shout out to them. So like Hector said, Delete Me removes private information from over 580 data brokers. And the average person has over 2,000 pieces of data about them online that can easily be found. So sign up and submit some basic information to Delete Me about your personal information for it to be removed from search engines. Then Delete Me experts will find and remove your personal information. You will then receive a detailed Delete Me report in seven days. And then Delete Me continues to scan for and delete information about you all year long, removing your personal information every three months. Removing personal information is complex and time consuming. With hundreds of data broker sites all having different policies and procedures, join Delete Me and make PII data removal easy for you. Go to the URL joindeleteme.com forward slash FED. That's joindeleteme.com forward slash FED and use the promo code FED20, FED20. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp wants to make sure everyone has easy, affordable, and private access to high quality therapy. Since 2013, over 30,000 licensed, accredited, and board-certified therapists from BetterHelp's network have helped more than 2 million people face life challenges and improve their mental health. BetterHelp's mission is to encourage people to invest in themselves, so I signed up for BetterHelp. The initial process of signing up was really simple and easy, Hector. Uh, I just filled out some questions about how I felt, what was going on in my life, and some preferences on the therapist I want. And then I was matched with a therapist that day. It was super easy for me to pick the type of communication that I wanted to with my matched therapist. You could choose from text, phone, or video. I chose phone. I thought that was the easiest for me to, to have a, a conversation with a therapist. Then after I picked that, my communication, uh, I was able to pick the day and time uh, that was convenient for my schedule for me to talk to my therapist. My therapist has been interactive and BetterHelp makes these interactions very easy by sending me emails every time my therapist has a new message. BetterHelp is great at reminding me when the sessions are is scheduled and offers the ability for me to change my appointment if something pops up in my life. I've had a great experience with BetterHelp. I'd recommend anybody reach out if you just want to talk to somebody, if you need a little extra help. 
reach out to BetterHelp. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited for your schedule. I've really been happy with the process and pleased to partner with BetterHelp on this podcast. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash H-A-T-F today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash H-A-T-F. Again, guys, reach out, betterhelp.com slash H-A-T-F, 10% off your first month. So, uh, Hector, uh, do you know what a, a, a refined kitten or a fancy bear is? <laughs> I know what a I know what a fancy bear is. A refined kitten. That sounds uh, that sounds like a kitten that's been through some shit. <laughs> How about a spandex temptress or a pumpkin sandstorm? Uh, it sounds like some more infosec BS. Am I right? <laughs> it is. So, oh, uh, yeah. So, uh, not, the next article out is hacker group names are now absurd and out of control. And it just kind of goes through that now Microsoft seems to be kind of taking a eh, or trying to force their way into a leadership of, of naming these uh, these hacker groups around the world. Yeah. And, you know, before Microsoft, it was, you know, Mandiant. It was before Mandiant. It was I mean, it just keeps going around in circles where you have these different companies doing the same kind of research. They're looking at the same threat actors with the same methodologies and modus operandi. And they just keep giving these groups names. It's, it's kind of absurd at this point. Yeah, I think it adds a lot of confusion to cybersecurity. Like uh, this was telling me that that Fancy Bear is the same thing as uh, Pawn Storm. It's also the same thing as Iron Twilight. Uh, they're all the same name for a Russian military intelligence hacking group. Um, so, but who knows what they are? But but again, Microsoft came out a few days ago talking about their cybersecurity division is going to change the way they do the naming entirely. Um, their previous system is that they used uh, the names of elements. Um, and they were kind of honest in this story and said that they're just writing out of names of elements. So now they're going to give hacker groups a, a two-word name uh, that includes a description as a as a weather-based term, like rainstorm or something like that, that indicates what country they believe they'd be working from, um, as well as whether they're state-sponsored or a, a criminal enterprise. So what they used to call phosphorus, uh, an Iranian group, uh, is now being called uh, mint sandstorm. Yeah, that's that's absurd. And let me just tell the audience here. I'm sure is that is as abs more absurd to you, or maybe even more annoying to you than it is for me. But we've we've had this problem with with the infosec industry and community for quite some time. I mean, I almost feel like this is the reason why CVEs blew up the way they did. Um, for guys, for you guys that don't know, CVE stands for Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. If Chris right now and Naxo were to identify vulnerability. Um, they would reach out to Mitter or um, you know some some you know man in the middle organization that would designate a CVE to their vulnerability, and then they'll get back to Chris and say, "Okay, Chris, the vulnerability that you found is now CVE, you know, twenty twenty three one two three four five. Okay, that's just an example. And so f- moving forward, when Chris and Nax would do their public disclosure, they would then you know title it, uh, title their, their their research project or findings rather as um, CVE 2023-12345, colon, space, new RCE in X software, right? Um, and then within the documents, they'll have um, you know, their the technical details and yada, yada, yada. You get the idea. Imagine a scenario where CVEs were like that, Chris. 
were like more like these naming conventions for these hacker groups, um, it would be absolutely madness. You would not be able to identify what vulnerability went to what and how to kind of correlate research or 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 kind of uh, um, information about those vulnerabilities without these CVEs. So I would think, and maybe I'm being a little old about it, but I almost feel like there should probably be, you know, whether it's Mitter or it's CISA or somebody that could come up with uh, a structure on how to name these groups moving forward. And if Microsoft wants to call a group Iron Twilight internally, they could do that. But when they make reference to it, they would have to make reference to that kind of that, that public name. So I agree that it's really, really freaking confusing to read all these different reports and try to figure out which name is who and, and what and who, how the difference are. But you just gave me a great idea. Um, you know how you can name a star after a loved one for a certain price? <laughs> yeah. Let's do that with hacking groups. I would love to give my <laughs> wife a name of a hacking group uh, for Christmas. That'd be great. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> no, but one point that I did read in the article that, that was a good point, why Microsoft is changing their name, is they want to make the, the new names of these groups more distinct and memorable. And the key part, searchable. If you just search for phosphorus, you know, that's not going to come back with what you're really looking for. But Mint Sandstorm is going to now kind of come back with, the, you know, this Iranian group that uh, has been targeting U.S. infrastructure. Um, maybe, you know, it's a little bit more searchable. So, so I'll give them on that, that it's, uh, that'll make it a little bit easier to find exactly what you're looking for. Um, I guess because it's Microsoft, I guess when you bing it. Yeah, but, you know, you can also consider... You know, how a lot of groups, a lot, a lot of threat intel companies have done with uh, using APT in an integer, right? APT1234. If you type in APT, you know, 91773 or something, you may not find that on Google. It, it has the same potential, the same usefulness as Iron Twilight, and it is more aligned with what the like, CVEs are kind of structured. I mean, I I, I get it. You want to use uh, non-ordinary uh I would say phrases or terms for these groups that, you know, won't be easily Googleable or confused with other results, right? I, I completely get that. But, you know, the fact that Microsoft decided to make this initiative on its own is kind of bizarre when, for example, Fancy Bear already has a name, right? Fancy Bear is Fancy Bear. Um, I, I, I didn't even know that Fancy Bear was also known as Pwnstorm. I had uh, Pwnstorm, you know what I mean? But, I mean, listen, it is what it is. We're going to keep seeing this stuff, guys. Uh, for the audience, I'm sorry. The, the security industry continues to confuse you. My bad on that. Hopefully one day things get better. But, I mean, when you go tell your clients, I mean, do you want to tell them ATP14 attacked you or do you want to tell them that Seashell Blizzard attacked you? I mean. I would rather I'd rather go with APT14. Because <laughs> <laughs> fucking Seashell C, C Blizzard, uh, I, they're going to look at me like I'm, like I'm making things up. Yeah, I think so. I I don't think this is a good move for cybersecurity. I I kind of understand what they're doing, but yeah, uh, not that I need a uniform body to tell me how to name these things, but I, I think there needs to be a common standard or it's just going to make people more and more confused um, and probably pay less attention to, to what's going on. So Hector, there's a new thing out and uh, this is more for the audience just to go check out on their own. So a couple, a couple of things. The, uh, it's a chart. It's how long would it take a hacker to brute force your password? So don't look. I want to ask you, see if you know. Um, if you had a, a, a 10-digit password that was numbers only, how long would it take? Oh, that would be instantly, bro. It would be instantly. Now, yeah. what if you had all uh, 10 characters of uh, upper and lowercase? What what is it? it goes from instant for numbers, upper and lowercase. What does that go to? It depends on what kind of brute forcing we're talking about. If we're talking about someone's brute forcing a hash using 
you know, Hashcat with maybe vast AI for its computing power, um, it would it would be a while. I mean, ten characters is still ten characters. It still has some decent entropy there. Yeah, maybe a day, maybe two days. Very close. No, twenty one hours. They said. Nice. So let's go into a couple of things you said though. Um, brute forcing. That's simply just trying every single possible combination until you hit it, right? Yeah, but there's brute forcing over the wire and there's brute forcing locally, right? So you let's say if you're able to extract a password hash from a system. And you take that hash and you you uh, you set up like like I, said, I mentioned before a vast AI uh, GPU uh, VM instance where you can actually compute on someone else's computer. You know it'll it'll in this case the ten characters uh, uppercase and lowercase letters yeah, it'll take about twenty one hours. Um, if you're brute forcing over the wire like the SSH brute force or um, you're trying to brute force MS SQL or something, um, that could take substantially longer because now you have to deal with the latency of not only of the three way handshake and then everything in between. That 21 hours is easy going to balloon into weeks or months. You're talking about GPUs, and, and we're talking about uh, graphical processing units versus CPUs. Um, why are they better for, for brute forcing passwords? Well, if you're brute force, again, it depends on the algorithm, right? There's some algorithms that um, are quote unquote, uh, you know, GPU resistant. Um, there's a whole, whole bunch of different algorithms for, for different, you know, uh, use cases. But in this case, you know, if you were to brute force from your home laptop, um, you you have a, a basic Intel Iris GE or Iris uh, uh, graphical user processor. You may not see much of uh, of a speed up in terms of cracking these hashes. You're still going to be able to crack if you were to go to uh, cloud computing, where you're using like you know uh, 10, 2070s for just a random example that some guy's hosting in his basement somewhere. And they're dedicated for nothing but you know uh, processing. Um, then yeah, you could you could you could go from twenty one hours easily into you know single hours. So there's, there's different caveats. There's, rather, there's different there's different uh, kind of ways to deal with this. If you again cracking from your CPUs will take much longer. If you're cracking from uh, hosted GPUs, it'll be easier, or quicker. Um, if you're cracking over the wire through a protocol like FTP or SSH, uh, it's just going to take much more longer. So I think that this graph here is specific to... Oh, wait, crack. did you peek? Oh, you bastard. I may have peeked a little <laughs> bit. I may have peeked a little bit. But yeah, Hive Systems comes out with this, I think, every year or whatever. It's a cool um, kind of breakdown as to the time to take uh, on, on cracking you know, high entropy passwords, which is really cool. Some of these go into you know billions of years. I thought it was interesting. I asked you about the uh, upper and lowercase letters. Yeah, uh, for ten of them, it was you know it was twenty one hours. But then if you just knock it up to if you had five more, go to fifteen. That's oh, yeah. eight hundred ninety eight thousand <laughs> years to crack it. And oh, then yeah. if you you had you, you go up to eighteen, it's one hundred twenty six billion years to crack it. Uh, <laughs> when you suggest passwords to people, what what length do you start at? Well, I mean, at this point, bro, I'll be mean, very honest with you. Like, I, I always try to say the um, it's really about entropy, right? You know, I, I tell people, look, you could have uh, 16 characters and, and just use phrases. It's a really cool, cool meme that people always, you know, kind of post when, uh, um, you know, when they talk about passwords. And it's from xkcd.com. I'm sure you guys have seen this a thousand times. But it gives you an example of, you know, what would happen if you create like an uncommon non-gibberish gibberish base word password, um, you know, it's about 20 entropies, at least in the example here. It takes about three days at a thousand guesses per second, right? Cool. Then they give you another example of how, well, you could you could keep it more simple 
and create a password. It's kind of like a phrase, a set of phrases, a set of words, um, like correct horse battery staple, which is about 44 entropy, uh, bits of entropy. And that would take anywhere between 550, 550 years and 1,000 guesses and more. So it's pretty interesting when it comes down to the password question. When people ask me, well, what kind of password should I use? Well, let's let's see what we can do in terms of entropy. Can you come up with a phrase um, you know, with random words that you can remember that's going to be useful and effective for you um, that's going to take a long time to crack? So I would say use phrases. Don't you have to use that, a different phrase for every site then? Absolutely, yeah, 100%. You always want to make sure that your passwords are different with every site, absolutely. Because uh, if you use this, let's say you come up with, uh, you know, correct horse battery staple, and then, you know, you add four more words, right? Now you have this massive entropy of password, but then you're using it on every website. The moment that one website backdoors the login process or the login process is backdoor, the password is kind of intercepted in plain text, that's it. All your accounts are compromised as well, right? Credential stuffing, you're going to be a victim. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. So I don't know. I just by rule of thumb, I, I always tell Mom Tarbell to uh, do uh, no less than sixteen. Um, yeah. You know, look at the chart. She obviously doesn't do numbers only. That sixteen can be done in an hour, but just lowercase. The lowest end to take numbers out of it is, is seven hundred thirteen years. So you know, I, I know she throws in some uppercase and throws in some special characters, um, and just by doing that, it takes it up to five billion years. So. Try to try to do the best for Mom Tarbo. Oh yeah, and I, you know I would say, folks, this is a great chart. Definitely take a look at the Hive Systems website. We're gonna have the link in the description. Um, it's a great chart. You may have seen it on Twitter or maybe Facebook or something, but definitely you know download and take a look at it. Remind yourself that it's very easy, regardless if you think you're clever. Uh, it's very easy to have these passwords cracked. So. So, Hector, a couple of questions came in. They wanted some, some answers from us. Again, if you want to reach out to uh, Hacker in the Fed, uh, reach out at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Um, if you have some feedback about how you don't like us saving our banter until the end, you know, send them over at questions at Hacker in the Fed, and I will certainly forward them on to Dave. Yeah. You know what? If you like the, the early banter, let us know. Put that in the email because um, we will definitely forward it upstream. No banter yet, Hacker. Uh, Hector. We're not okay. there. We're my not bad, there. Oh, we got these questions, and then we banter. <laughs> Fine. All right. So Victoria wrote out to, wrote to us. She says, "I know each federal agency has its own title for intelligence analysts. I'm currently in the hiring track for an intelligence analyst, research specialist for another agency. My question is: Have you worked with other roles that heavily contribute to your past cyber cases other than special agents in the cyber division, aka intelligence analysts? If so, how do they help you?" They are an absolute godsend, Victoria. In the New York office, we had intelligence analysts. We had at least two of them embedded in our squad. These guys know how to do research um, like no one else. They're seeing all the cases across all the squad, the cyber squads and other things, and they're putting the big picture together. Um, Sometimes as a case agent, you kind of get just nose down in your own cases you only know what's going on in your own cases and you meet your squad meets and goes through the cases and you talk about them and how you can help each other but you still don't really give a shit you're just kind of list you're not really listening um the ias the what we call the intelligence they know exactly what's going on and they'll come over and see a new threat or something that they know every case in the squad 
and they'll monitor the intelligence coming out to see if it helps you with your case. These guys are an absolutely guys and girls. Um, Hector, you worked with some IAs when you and I worked together in the FBI. Did you know the difference uh, when they came and talked to you between the IAs and the agents? Yeah. I mean, I know that speaking with the agents, it was very general. Sometimes it would be targeted questions or maybe. Um, And it seems like the analysts, this this is my take. It's my personal opinion. I I felt like they were were more knowing or they had a better understanding of certain things. It was hard to tell, though, right? Because at that point, I didn't know if you guys were just, you know, like social engineering me or some shit, you know? (laughs) But it seemed like some people were definitely much more knowledgeable of phrases, uh, vernacular, terminology. And then others were much more general, you know, maybe like more like cops rather than, you know. So that was my take, at least. Yeah. So, I mean, Victoria, yeah, they're just embedded right in the squad. I mean, there are headquarters intelligence analysts and they do a good job putting together the global picture and all that. Um, And, you know, you'll get information with them. Um, You'll have intelligence analysts come to the squad and supplement if there's a big case we're working on uh, and we need extra help. They'll come and do a TDY or temporary duty assignment to come and uh, sit on the squad and help us. But yeah, no, they, they really do great work. And, uh, and I really, you know, uh, you have a great career ahead of you if that's what you're getting into. And best of luck, um, you know, getting your IA spot uh, at the other agency. So, Hector, our next question is from Vadim, a high school student in Manitoba, Canada. So, Vadim, uh, thank you for listening to Hacker and the Fed. We really appreciate it. Vadim asks us, Hector, I have heard many people say that Apple devices have a security system uh, which make it uh, much more impossible to hack. What is your opinion of this statement? No. Yes, I mean, big no. No. That's, <laughs> uh, Macs, just like Linux machines, just like a BSD machine, just like a Windows machine, um, they could all be compromised. You can create viruses for them. Um, there's nothing new. You know, there were viruses for DOS systems. There were viruses for um, all sorts of different operating systems. Uh, Palm OS, you know, for your Palm phones. So no, there is not a security system that's going to inherently make Apple products more secure. I had heard this. This is a statement that had gone around probably in the late 90s, early, very early 2000s. I don't know. This may have just been Apple marketing that put this out there um, and somehow it stuck. I had heard some people say once, uh, you know, that it was, Apple devices maybe were a little bit more secure back then just because they were so expensive and people didn't have access to do research on them. Have you heard any of these rumors, or are these just one of those things that that, that just kind of went around? No, I mean when, when I was when I was around in the nineties, and you know the VX scene or the virus scene was was large. It was, it was booming back in those days. There were people working on and creating you know malware for for Mac systems. Like it wasn't. I've always wondered where that rumor came from. Like why why is that even a thing? Now it's different. We're talking about like, hey, can you just create a virus for like an iPhone. Well, I think it's a little bit more different for iPhone um, because uh, the iPhone system is, is not more inherently secure than any other system. But there's a, lot of, there's a ton of sandboxing that takes place on an iPhone, for example, okay? That may not be present on like a regular MacBook if you bought a MacBook at the store. You know, when it comes down to uh, iPhone, the major difference between both systems, so both, both devices, is that an iPhone for, I would say, many practical reasons you know, tries to avoid potential uh, uh, root kits or rather uh, uh, rooting, which is basically the, the, the process of, of getting root access to your system or to your phone for the purpose of installing, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, out of band applications, applications that you know were not accepted to the Apple Store or not available in the Apple Store. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why Apple would do that with an iPhone. Um, security is one of them, but for a MacBook now, I mean, it's it's basically Unix on the back end. I'm not sure if if macOS is still running like was it Dragonfly BSD? Let me see. Uh, let me see if I can find like the the name for that. Um, so it's true. There's some commentary here. Commentary here. Mac OS at as is is connected to uh, BSD or considered to be BSD. Pretty cool stuff. I thought it was Dragonfly BSD, but I could be wrong. That could be just old information I have in my head. But it, it is a Unix system, you know. So if you could create malware for a BSD system, like FreeBSD, for example, you could definitely create it for uh, Mac OS as well. Have you ever encountered or dealt with a Melissa virus? That's funny. That's you know what this is, right? Melissa virus. I know the Melissa. I know. I mean, is he talking about the Melissa virus, the macro virus that yeah. uh, went after <laughs> Word '97 and 2000? Yeah, man, this was a classic. Yeah, it was a good one. It was in, executed by AOLer, someone from AOL. He hijacked somebody's account and started posting, um, you know, on news groups about this, uh, you know, this Melissa title. Um, and it was a macro virus, so it traveled by automation. If you open this on Outlook or Word, then, you know, some code will be executed on your, in your client side, and then it would then propagate to your address book. Very similar to the I Love You virus, which was much more prominent. There was, at that time, we're talking about like mid-90s to like early 2000s, there were a ton of these different macro viruses. Most of them just kind of went into the ether and they died out. But some of these like Melissa and um, I Love You, uh, those those blew up. You know, something like 300 organizations or government organiza- organizations around the world were compromised as a result. You know, it, it, it caused uh, a ton of headaches for IT specialists and admins. So big shout out to them for having to deal with that. But, and if you did, how was it treated? Well, I, I, I would say by 99, I was already on Linux. So it didn't really affect me at all. How about you, uh, Chris? Did, did anything, any of these macro viruses ever hit you? No, I never got infected by one. But I mean, the only connection I really had to the Melissa virus. So it was written by a guy named David Smith. Yeah, yeah, that's a dude from AOL. Yeah, yeah. So he assisted the FBI in tracking down um, a guy named uh, DeWitt. Uh, is a John Jan, Jan DeWitt? Uh, do you know who Jan DeWitt is? No, I don't think so. He's the guy that wrote the Anna Kornikova virus. Ah, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Some people interesting. probably don't know who Anna Kornikova is, but like I in, remember in, that. Oh yeah. yeah, in the late '90s, early 2000s, Anna Kornikova was a Russian tennis player, and people would go and watch tennis and they would spend the court where she practiced on would be more people than an actual tennis match happening. Um, she sure took the why. world by storm. Oh, she was gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that's the only, my only real connection to that, knowing that this guy, um, after he did, he wrote the Melissa uh, virus that he helped the FBI with tracking down the inner Kornikova guy. That's interesting. I, I I don't remember that at all. Like I yeah. remember the the Anna Kornikova one uh, virus, but not the you know not the takedown. So like, did, did he know the actual guy or it? No, they they used him after his arrest to, to help lure the guy out. It's, wow. Uh, maybe we'll get into it. Maybe that'll be a whole episode of how you know how what? Yeah, let's do it one of these days. <laughs> I I bet you if you sent me an email with an attachment for Anna Kornikova JPEG, <laughs> it would be it? hard for me to not click on it. <laughs> But but I never got it. So oh yeah. So our next question is a uh, guy from Jason in Iowa, and Jason actually recently saw me uh, speak at the uh, 
Eastern Iowa Security Conference. Nice. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, thanks, Jason. Thanks for jumping on Hacker and the Fed. I, I pimped the show while we were, I was out there. Jason wrote, uh, with the wide range of security software and tools that are being offered these days, is it best to stick to a single vendor or diversity? Oh, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question, Jason. I think that people need to probably hear this answer. My take is that there are a lot of great tools out there. There's a lot of fantastic vendors. I've met a lot. I mean, I work for VAR, which is very you know weird, right? I'm not. I don't work for a pen testing company directly, but I, I do have. A, I, I do work under a pen testing department within a VAR, and uh, VAR stands for Value Added Reseller. So basically, a security reseller. That's all they do. Now, what's fascinating about being in this position is that I'm able to interface with tons of vendors and meet a lot of you know very interesting folks and also demo the products. I get to play with all the latest security products that are coming out, and I have a good perspective as to what works, what doesn't work. And, and you know, depending on the relationship with those vendors, I will give them opinions. I might even do a webinar for them, and I, I might even become a, an advisor for them, which I've, I've done with a few companies. Uh, you might be a big fan of X company, but their competitors might have better products. And it's okay, right? You don't have to be married to the hip with one company or the other. You should definitely explore and demo competition. You know, if you if you hook up with a VAR, just like the company I work for, you hook up with another VAR and say, hey, look, I'm in the I'm in the business, rather, I'm looking for, you know, a next generation uh antivirus or EDR solution or XDR solution. Can we do a bake-off? And guess what? The VAR would say yes. So you will be able to bake off, you know, a CrowdStrike and a Sentinel One and Maybe a company you've never heard of, because there's, there's probably like 30 EDRs now. And you could bake off against all of these different products, and you could come up with your own conclusion, right? Because it could be a demo of different products for you, and you could pick and choose at that point what you want and want to implement in your organization. So, yes, diversify. And if you hook up with some sort of VAR or some sort of uh, you know reseller or MSP or whatever, um, or MSSP, sorry, you, know, you may be able to, to get the best bang for your buck and, and really get a good, good tool. Yeah, no, I agree. Diversify. I mean, there, there's, there's no absolutely zero reason to be married to one particular vendor. Um, that vendor probably is not going to have the best product across the board for every person. Try out all the different vendors. Like, like Hector said, these guys will come in and give you demos. Um, they'll let you try their product and all that. So, uh, so diversify, diversify, diversify. Hector, I am super excited. We have finally reached time for banter. Oh, <laughs> um, I'm, not a little, I'm actually a little tired now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe that was a strategy to get us tired so that we don't maybe. have to banter. Wear us out so uh, so we didn't have to, uh, uh, you know, have this banter. That's Dave's whole mission. He wants us to live a banter-free lifestyle. Yeah, well, I'm sure he banters a lot and, you know, he's, he's envious. He doesn't want us to do it. So I don't know. <laughs> So, did you listen to last week's episode and how many times Phineas left him, his own name in there? I thought it was fantastic. How many? How many did you count? Uh, I think four times. I think he was in there four times. So. Wow! Look at so, that. Phineas is he's he's putting himself in the targets. Uh, that's good. That's good. He is, he is good. He's good. I'm excited. I love I love the way Phineas makes a sound at the end of these things. <laughs> Anyways, what do you got going on in the week ahead? Anything good? Oh man, it's gonna be a busy week. I have a bunch of engagements. I'm have some meetings lined up. It's going to be a long week. Any travel? Do you have to travel anywhere? Well, that's a great question. I have to travel soon. 
in a couple of weeks, I'll be traveling all across like uh, the Southeast, you know, so I'm probably going to be in, in Charlotte. I might be in, uh, you know, Miami. So I got I have a few things coming up that, you know, is going to keep me busy, especially good, on the road. Yeah. yeah, I will. Let, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to let your secret out there, but Hector's got some very exciting projects he's working on uh, that hopefully as soon as uh, we can talk about them on the show, we're going to talk about it on the show. But uh, it's oh, yeah. very exciting, some of the stuff Hector's got going on. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be great. I mean, I have um, kind of some good news I want to share with the audience. We'll do that very soon, I promise. But, yeah, it's going to be a busy year, maybe a busy couple of years for me. And I'm looking forward to it. How about yourself? How's, how's everything with you, Naxo, and the, and the whole crew? Good. Naxo is expanding. and uh, we're, we're starting to bring some bodies on board. Um, so that's good. Uh, a lot of good cases are coming in. We're getting a lot of good leads. You know, had some... Great conversations today with some some government folks. Um, so you're really trying to build up that side of the business. Uh, I have a couple of emails to send out. Actually, as soon as I'm done with this, I have to reach out to Lex Friedman uh, and talk to him about something we got going. We might Ooh. have to be able to do together. No, that sounds fun. Yeah, so we'll see what Lex has to say. It'll be exciting. Oh, I wanted to let the audience know we have a couple of really exciting guests coming up. Uh, Hector and I are recording a show this week that'll probably be the next episode. Very special guest. Um, and then we have one lined up after that. Um, it's really going to call and follow the, uh, you know, women in cybersecurity. You know, we're in different mm-hmm. positions. Um, so, you know, we had a really good response from Kelly Moan's appearance on the show. Uh, people seem to really like that. Uh, yeah, that so great. we're going to continue that. Um, we're really excited about doing doing some of this. So we said last week, you know, if you guys have any guests that you'd like us to interview or or try to get on the show, um, we haven't nailed down the date yet for Elon Musk, but um, I know it's going to be soon. What are you <laughs> yeah, laughing at? So, no, no, I'm just saying he's a busy guy. It's going to take a little while, but we, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll find time. We'll find time <laughs> to get him on. You know, I know he, he's a listener, but, you know, he may be a little shy to come on the show. Another fun show, Hector. I enjoyed talking to you. I look forward to... Uh, our next couple of shows and sure. uh, I hope you have a good week. Same to you, man. I hope you have a fantastic week and I hope the audience sends us, sends us some great questions. I'll, uh, I'll be seeing you soon. Sounds good. So new episodes every Thursday, download, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast and tell your friends. Cheers, Hector. Cheers, my friend.